Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. This time, as promised, I have Chet on. Chet, the self-identified anarcho-communist, who is going to be one of about half a dozen recurring guest stars to the podcast, all of whom are significantly to my left, um, so that I can continue the tradition of threading the needle in honor of my great friend, Corey, who is no longer a co-host, but who is also going to continue coming on as a guest star himself. I was, so, I was worried you were going to give us like his eulogy or something there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he's still very much alive. He just doesn't have the patience to talk to me about politics or, well, no, that's not true. He doesn't have the, the he doesn't want to talk about political strategy or philosophy or rhetoric. He only wants to talk about policy. So all of my episodes with Corey are going to be about policy and I get to have those other conversations with different progressives. So Chet, the first question for you would be, um, do you consider yourself a progressive or not? I guess you better say yes to that. <laughs> and then secondly, um, you know, what is anarcho-communism in your, in your, well, actually, first of all, tell everybody about yourself as just on a personal level. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I've got a, a background in activism of various sorts. Um, I was involved in Occupy. Um, I was involved with the Yang campaign, obviously. It's kind of how we all got together um, and, and various other smaller efforts. Um, my academic background, I uh, went to or graduated from Missouri State University uh, with a Bachelor of Science in Anthropology. Um, and I minored in religious studies. And so kind of, uh, I don't know, I, I really enjoy thinking about um, how people's worldviews um, affect their behavior and uh, vice versa. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, very interested to have a lot of these conversations because uh, I know Rio uh, is a very thoughtful uh, conservative. And I, you know, maybe it's, I'm just running in the wrong circles, but I don't always see that. So it's, it's exciting to hear more uh, thoughtful voices out there on the right. Yeah. And it's always wonderful for me to, to um, talk to a, a thoughtful lefty. And especially when it comes to communists, in my I, experience, <laughs> um, there are a lot of very, very, unreasonable people who are who you know they're they're like the stalin did nothing wrong uh north korea is actually secretly a worker's paradise and the only reason you don't think that is because you know the the u.s imperialist mainstream media's propaganda machine so there's a lot right. of that and i won't be having any <laughs> of those people on the podcast because i, no, only I have reasonable people it. on <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend it <laughs> Yeah, so to be clear, uh, Chet is a communist, but he's not—he's not a Stalinist. I asked him off air, and he said that is true. So actually, I already knew that. Um, yeah. Okay. So Chet, um, progressive, and then anarcho-communism. What do those mean to you? And and sure. and, and, and and why do you identify with them? Sure. Um, so uh, progressive, I would uh, kind of ask for someone else's definition of that. It's not a word that um, I identify with strongly, um, but a lot of my attitudes are going to be parallel to progressivism, um, especially when it comes to like the electoral arena and um, how to affect uh, the sort of 
uh, institutional process of politics. Um, so for me, uh, progressivism is kind of like a blanket term for what's considered left in the U.S. And uh, I do I do participate in that arena. So uh, whether or not I'm a progressive uh, is kind of a contextual thing. Um, so I don't know if that's a good answer, but... Um, as far as anarcho-communism, uh, that's, that's well, actually Chet, real quick before yeah. you answer the anarcho-communism one, I wanted to riff on what you said about progressive. Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, you're a listener to the show, so you know this. Um, my opinion is that most people, if they're being honest with themselves, are both conservative and progressive in the sense that, you know, all of us have something that, about society that we want to conserve unless we literally believe that everything about society is terrible and there's not a single thing worth saving, there's something about each of us that is conservative. Right. Similarly, there's something about each of us that is progressive in the sense that most of us, if we're being honest, would admit that there are certain aspects of society that we should work to improve, right? That's the way I see it. Um, and the reason I identify as a conservative um, more so than a progressive right now is just because I, the way I look at it, I see um, illiberalism on the rise in both parties, and I see the alt-right and um, far left as a threat to those liberal values. And so for me, the number one priority is preserving liberalism itself. Um, and, and so I'm very, in a, I'm in a conservative mindset. Also, the status quo works great for me. So <laughs> I just want, I want to make sure that when I compromise with my own progressive side, if you will, Right. As well as with other people who are more progressive than I am, more progressively inclined than I am. I just want to make sure that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's where I'm coming from there. And so right. I think you know that. All right. So yeah. talk us through anarcho-communism. Yeah. Well, and I just I just want to say I do like that framing because I think, um, you know, you and Corey have talked a lot about uh, tribal identifiers. And I think um, that kind of blurs the lines a little bit and kind of allows everyone to to. Uh, I don't know, be a little bit more considerate about other people's worldviews and also to, um, I don't know, maybe be a little bit more honest with themselves that like, yeah, I do have, like, I mean, they're, so uh, I'm, I'm very much on the radical end of the political spectrum, but there are things I want to conserve. And uh, w whenever you're just thinking in terms of tribal identifiers, you can, you can often miss that part about yourself. And so I, I like the framing because it, I think it helps people be a little more honest. Yeah, thank um, you for saying that. I I think that's uh that's that's correct. And to be clear, I'm not this isn't this I'm not, you know, this isn't some kumbaya thing coming from me. It's not it's not I'm not saying, you know, all ideas are equally good and every, you know, whatever, you know, the, the truth is always in the middle between two extremes or anything not nutty like that. Um as you said, I'm too thoughtful a person to believe in that kind of bullshit. Uh, <laughs> um there there are ideas that um that I oppose. Um and I would just say that to me what the interesting debate is what should we conserve and where should we progress and how do we progress? And that's where you get into the nuts and bolts of things. That's where people genuinely disagree. And I make a distinction between ideas that will result in progress in real life and ideas that people just call progressive, <laughs> which, right. which might make things worse, right? So um, regardless of people's self-identity, I don't really like these as tribal identifiers in, in short is what I'm saying, actually. Right. Like, I don't I don't I don't think that it's healthy for people to self-identify um, too much with one label because then they are shutting off 
they're they're progressive side, for example, if they only identify with the conservative, for example, right? right? So I don't really like the, them as tribal identifiers. I'm I'm using them in a more of a uh, practical way, where I think you know somebody is conservative to the extent they want to actually conserve certain aspects of society. Interesting debate: which ones should those be? Right? They're progressive to the extent that they actually want to create progress, which I define as making things better than the status quo. Right? And then there are ideas that would that would make things worse, and obviously that's you know that's somewhat subjective and a matter of opinion, I guess. Uh, but that's the way I like to frame the conversations. And so the the things that are going to make things worse, I don't call them progressive; I call them regressive. And um, I consider the real opposite of progressive is regressive, not conservative. In practice, real progress has to be somewhat conservative because that's how you avoid regress. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, as as far as the 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 philosophy of anarcho communism, um, I take a lot of cues from uh, Peter Kropotkin, who um, I believe is more or less the the originator of uh, the concept. Um, Anarchism predates him, but uh, he was, I believe he was the one to kind of marry the two ideas. Um, and it's its basically the notion that um, we shouldn't be subject to what we believe to be illegitimate authority. Um, authority should uh, basically prove its legitimacy in our lives. And uh, that the opposite of that would be some, some sort of, you know, tyranny or oppression uh, so the, we, we bring up uh, Stalinism or, you know, uh, Maoism or something like that. Those to me are like um, examples of oppressive totalitarian regimes. So uh, so they, w- they would be illegitimate to the anarchists. Um, and also just to kind of take a little detour, um, anarchism has always been a leftist, like a, a socialist or communist ideology. Um, anarcho-capitalism is something that's happened pretty much only in the U.S. and and only in the last half century or so. Um, so it's it it doesn't really relate to anything historical that would that would yeah no I I I, I, I want to jump in as the capitalist on the podcast and say I completely agree with that I think anarcho-capitalism is a freaking oxymoron it, yeah right it, <laughs> like you literally can't have capitalism without a state like it. That that is an it's an incoherent idea. <laughs> it cracks me up so much that that we agree on that. But yeah, that's definitely <laughs> it's well, uh, well, and unfortunately, you know, because like labels are confusing. Unfortunately, a lot of people think like, a lot of people who call themselves anarcho capitalists really are just free market capitalists, which is not anarchism. It's liberalism. <laughs> it's right, yeah. Market. I would agree as well. And and you get into weird contradictions like uh, they kind of want to reinvent the state, but they want it to be like a micro state that they own themselves. And it's like, are we going back to monarchy or something like what's what's going on here? Yeah, like their monarchism is on the rise. There's that especially like a theocratic monarchism. That's actually part of the alt right now. It's that is, you know, that's one of the things I really respect about republicanism <laughs> is they did not like the monarchs. Um. Anyways, um, yeah. So uh, I mentioned Peter Kropotkin. Um, I mentioned uh, anarchism. Historically, being... yes, his, the Republican Party lately is is uh, you know uh, yeah. an absolute inversion of itself. Well, I I mean I know we're on a tangent now, but I mean they they want a king, right? And that's like the big irony here is like they want Donald Trump to be uh, like a 
divinely selected leader. That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the populism is what it is. It's the, it's the, it's because they buy into this populist myth that the reason we have problems in our society is because experts suck and elites are all corrupt. And all we really need is just to have like a regular Joe guy to defend, you know, other regular Joes and, you know, the democratic process is just messy. It gets in the way. So like, let's just tear everything down because these are obstacles to us getting our way is that's where it's coming from. They, they really believe they've given up on the experiment of America. They've given up on liberalism completely. It's um, it's definitely concerning. Um, so, anyways, uh, uh, communism. So, uh, my approach to communism is uh, informed both by uh, political philosophy and also anthropological theory. So, uh, my understanding is basically, uh, communism is not uncommon as far as uh, human behavior is concerned. Uh, it's essentially the the desire to fulfill uh, human need. Um, so a lot of uh, you know hunter gatherer societies operate on communist type principles. Um, I don't think we should turn into hunter gatherers, but I think there are things you can learn from hunter gatherers that are that are interesting. Um, uh, you know, there's uh, various uh, experiments that have been done uh, more recently that operate on communist principles. Um, actually, I mentioned uh, my background at Occupy. Occupy more or less operated on communist principles where uh, people weren't selling services to each other so much as they were just providing them as in a sort of gift economy type model. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of uh, baggage with that word. And uh, if, if someone has some sort of like emotional response to it, I'm perfectly comfortable with just dropping it and kind of just describing things technically, but uh, to me, that's what communism means. Is I want to see um, human needs fulfilled, and uh, I'm I'm willing to work towards that uh, without any sort of you know, like I don't know, profit incentive or something like that. Um, so you know, you put all that together, and you have a sort of uh, uh, a sort of libertarian and yet a very uh, collective approach to politics, uh, if that makes sense. Not entirely, but I, I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of get where you're coming from. Um, we, we can get well, into like – Well, know, I mean like you know, the libertarian party is, is, is obviously a totally different animal. But you know, the, I, I think the ideology of liberalism is the one that centers liberty. And that's kind of where it's coming from. It's like the 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 government is the Leviathan is a necessary evil. Um, and since it's necessary, we are going to tame it through the liberal process of, of democracy. Um, so. But Let, but the, the, me, what uh, I see is the difference between what I see is the difference between liberalism, which includes capitalism and communism is that it's not that liberalism doesn't care. It's not that it's not that a liberal doesn't care at all about the collective. It's just that when they're at odds, the liberal errs on the side of individual liberty. And whenever somebody believes that it is in the good of the collective to violate individual liberty, the liberal is going to say no to that, whereas a communist would say yes. That's what I see as the distinction. Would you agree with that? Um, but not necessarily but uh let me touch on the the notion of libertarianism for a second 
Um, we mentioned how uh, the term anarchism kind of jumped from the left to the right in, in fairly recent history in a, in a, a very American context. Like in, in most of the world, uh, uh, anarchism is, is a very much a leftist ideology. And the same is actually true of libertarian. Um, it originated from a uh, French poet and philosopher, uh, Joseph de Jacques, um, about a century and a half ago. And uh, the original term libertarianism was actually uh, a sort of polite way of saying anarcho-communist. Um, and really, it was, uh, I don't know, uh, Murray Rothbard and uh, some of those types that uh, turned libertarian into the, the extreme, like, uh, right-wing pro-capitalist uh, sort of ideology that it is today. Um, yeah, no, that makes sense to me. That's part of the reason why I call myself a liberal like the original meaning of the word liberal right is 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 a much more accurate philosophical term for the the right than libertarian right but uh yeah your your uh question was about uh the sort of conflict between the individual and the collective and how uh how communism handles that so um from kind of the inception of leftist ideology there's always been a split between people that want to take more authoritarian approaches and people that want to take uh, more, I, I can't help myself. I have to call it libertarian. <laughs> uh, people that want to take the, the sort of you, anti- you mean the opposite of authoritarian. Yeah, yeah. The the, uh, the people that want to take the sort of anti-authoritarian approach, which is like the the tradition I sympathize with, and uh, you're going to find a mix of answers, and it'll it'll depend on situation. Um, my opinion on this is that generally there is, it actually relates to, uh, the whole framing of scarcity and abundance. Um, I think it's in situations of scarcity that you have like these, uh, zero sum situations where you have to make a choice about like either, uh, a person's individual rights or the, the well-being of the collective. And I think uh, this is one reason why uh, leftist projects in the past have had a lot of difficulty is uh, basically because they were attempting we, the impossible. What, uh, basically, they were in a, a context of scarcity. And so it's it's really difficult to negotiate those issues. I think it has a lot to do with the, the material situation in the moment. And the reason why I see uh, what I'm describing as becoming increasingly viable is because more and more we are in a situation of abundance, and and wouldn't wouldn't it be ironic though if it was capitalism that created the wealth necessary and the technology necessary to actually achieve anarcho-communism? <laughs> uh, I, I think there is some irony there, um, and I don't I don't know that that's the exact uh, narrative that I would use. However, I don't think it's wrong. Um, I do think we are. And, and this is this is kind of a difficult thing to think about from a social science perspective because uh, the, talking about like progress is kind of a controversial thing. Like, are we making progress as a species? Um, at least in a sense, I think we are. And I think uh, capitalism is actually like a stage of that progress. And so I, I do think there is some irony that, that capitalism is likely to to empower um, what could be seen as its like um, antithesis, 
Well, um, and you could also, I mean, going down that road, you could even argue that um, somewhat counterintuitively, um, a uh, somebody who wants to achieve real anarcho-communism would be shooting themselves in the foot if they tried to kill capitalism rather than let it create the the conditions for um, non-zero sum um, wealth generation. Yeah, my my opinion on this is that uh, really, and this is uh, not something that's widely shared on the left, but it's not like non-existent. Um, it's it's something that I've I've received some uh, I don't know positive response and uh, some negative response. But basically, my my opinion is that uh, we should be looking to a sort of empirical understanding of social well-being as our sort of north star to to navigate um, what I perceive to be right now is a, a sort of transition to a global society. Um, I think we're actually, one of the reasons why you're seeing all these uh, populist uprisings around the world is I think the nation state model is having a hard time uh, with this role that it wasn't really designed for. Um, it, it wasn't designed to manage the biosphere. And that's kind of what we as humans have to do at this point. Uh, we're, we're finding out like, you know, uh, our sort of nation state model where we have these like, uh, you know, close to 200, something like that players on the surface of the planet, uh, kind of competing and jockeying for position. And that process is having these like major externalities like climate change that, that threaten the whole game. And so I, I think what we need to find is a model that's capable of that that next level of management, which is uh, which is planetary in scale. And so, um, I of course I think my ideas are the ones that fit that job, um, and that may not be the case, but that's that's my bias at this moment. And I I I really do think that that's like the task that we have ahead of us. Yeah, um, no, I, I think I think that's a, an interesting point, and I, I I even agree with it to a certain extent. I mean, obviously, um, we're dealing with the fact that we have vestigial um, political entities like nation states that evolved for you know a, a, as a response to problems that existed in the past, um, and not in order to address necessarily the problems that we have today. So I, I think that is completely valid point. Um, you know, as one of the recurring guest stars on this show, you and I are going to have a very long conversation over the course of several months <laughs> or even years, maybe. Who knows? We'll see. Depends on how many people uh, listen to it and continue to support the podcast. But um, I think that my conversation with you, Chet, is going to be largely focused on this vision of the future and how to get there. Because uh, I think we share some goals, um, and I and I'm I'm not sure to the ex- the extent that we disagree um, about the long term future. So maybe that could actually be an interesting jumping off point for a super duper long, well, obviously a series of mini conversations, right? Um, you know, like the the 130 episodes I did with Corey are great to listen to in sequence, all of them because. Um, well, you, you, as you have, is because you know it's interesting to see our relationship evolve over time and the way we learned from each other, the way we came to understand each other's perspective, 
Um, that's what I'm trying to recreate uh, with multiple people at this point. And, and so my conversations with Corey going forward are going to be more policy focused. Um, and uh, with you, I really want to I really want to work out these differences between liberalism, which which I which, which includes capitalism and um, and uh, what you're calling anarcho-communism and try to figure out how we can work together to achieve shared goals in ways that don't undermine either of us, if that's possible. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, a part of what I can offer here is, um, it's, it's necessary for, uh, myself and people like myself, if we want to be effective in, in, uh, achieving our goals, um, it's necessary that, that we be, um, tolerant. And this is something that we're not always so great at. Um, we, we have like uh, really quick reactions to ideologies that, um, at least on the surface, uh, conflict with ours. And uh, I think where uh, voices like uh, mine have been failing, um, where they do exist in media, which they're, they're pretty rare, but where they do exist... I think uh, we're we're far too competitive and combative, and uh, we we fail to make ourselves understood. So, like uh, probably already, like we're we're twenty five minutes into this conversation, and um, this is probably a fairly unique perspective for a lot of people listening, uh, because you know we have so many popular images of like what anarchism or communism mean, and you know, some people fit those popular images, um, but they're also stereotypes. And uh, I think uh, more, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like more normies, <laughs> like more, more normie commies need to like make themselves heard uh, because there's a lot of uh, reasonable, thoughtful, uh, careful thinkers that are working on these ideas that I'm describing. And uh, we want to make them understood. We don't, there's just so much misunderstanding and I, th I think it's a terrible mistake for all of us. I think if we want, um, you know, a beautiful, collaborative, sustainable, healthy future, um, I, th I think we have to really have open ears for each other and uh, try to keep the dialogue constructive. And that's, that's not always easy. And I fail at that constantly. Um, but you know, yeah, sometimes I, you succeed. Well, I obviously agree with that. And that's part of the reason that Corey left the podcast. Well, I mean, again, he's staying on as now, I guess he's still staying, but now I'm going to be having, you know, six Corey's instead of one. <laughs> right. Um, but that's because he, we reached a point where on certain topics, he felt like my conversations with him were no longer being productive. Right. And, and he was, he just didn't have the patience to continue the philosophical sorts of conversations. Um, so right. he, he, he definitely recommended you as one of the best people for me to continue doing that with, because you do have a kind of quietness about you. You're almost like a Buddhist master or something. That's, <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, um, hopefully we can be more constructive than Corey and I were when we talk about Paul. Although that to be, to be honest, I think we were very constructive for quite a while on philosophy, but Corey's just, you know, he just, couldn't emotionally do it anymore. And, well, and, and that's okay. I think, I think, um, 
you know, I think there's something to be said for uh, relationships that change over time and conversations that have different stages. And I think uh, your conversations were largely successful. I, I really enjoyed them. Um, obviously, I didn't always like agree with what I heard, but it was always like stimulating. So I'm I'm really happy that you guys uh, started this effort, and I'm glad it's continuing. Uh, would have really Thank broke you. my and, heart. And by, I, by the way, I love that you said that. I don't always agree with it. This is this is uh, this is a challenge that I would put out to our listeners, and that honestly, I think everybody should <laughs> consider taking upon themselves. If you only listen to stuff where you agree with everything, right? Maybe you're in an echo chamber and maybe you would grow and learn more as a person and refine your own ideas and maybe even figure out that you were wrong about something, right? It happens to all of us. <laughs> if you would listen no, to this, right? But I'm like, I mean, the, to, like <laughs> if I was doing this podcast to make money, right? I would, I would be like, okay, I'm going to do a populist alt-right podcast, or I'm going to do a populist far-left po- podcast, or oh, I'm going to yeah. do a partisan Republican podcast or a partisan Democrat podcast. The and there's so much more money in that because people like the entertainment and the reassurance of hearing somebody smart say stuff they agree with all day long. But that's not right. what this project is about. Yeah, no, th- that's a that's a very common phenomenon. You can tell like certain internet personalities are there to make money. They're not there to like, you know, carefully consider issues and like think through them. I know since I've been listening to this podcast, um, I've I've added a lot of thought to my own ideology, which is not uh, all that closely related to the podcast. Um, but just having that stimulation from a different angle. Um, causes me to consider my own positions a lot more. So it's it's very very healthy to listen to people that you disagree with. Or, so it, I mean, it occurs to me it, it occurs to me that you're at a huge advantage coming into this because you know way more about my worldview than I do about yours because <laughs> <laughs> you've listened to me talk about it for 130 episodes right. and uh, that so that's interesting. So and listeners, please be nice to me if it seems like Chet is kicking my ass. He does have a little bit of an advantage at, at first here. <laughs> It's no, no, we're, we're here to help each other. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, uh, so yeah, where, where were we? Uh, we we're, we're moving through something. Well, I mean, I guess, well, let's, maybe this first podcast should really, that this first conversation with you, I mean, I've had you on the podcast before and when the show was a different, slightly different thing, although right. this, what, what this new, this new mode of it is very much in the spirit of what it's always been. Um, so this is the first conversation that's just you and me, right? And there's going to be a whole bunch of them, I hope. So maybe we should focus this first one on, on you trying to catch me up, you know, like tell, tell me more about like, what is your worldview and then how do you manifest it practically in politics? Like what's your, what's your, what's your uh, practical application of your worldview and why do you go about it that way? I, I like that. Um, so, uh, a kind of framing that um, I've picked up elsewhere and kind of adopted for myself to, to help make uh, my thoughts a little less esoteric, a little more uh, accessible to people, is uh, to discuss the concept of post-scarcity. Um, and this is um, a sort of, there's a lot of ways of talking about it, but it's a sort of anticipated era of abundance in uh, production and uh, technology. Assuming we don't blow ourselves up in the meantime. Oh man, that's the trick, isn't it? <laughs> but, 
it's a, it's it's very concerning the path we're on. Um, but uh, so one way I uh, applied this worldview was actually participating in the Andrew Yang campaign because I I saw although he never used that term, um, I saw a great deal of parallels. Uh, between uh, Yang's approach to problem solving and what could be called like a post-scarcity type approach. That's true. Although he did, he did use the term scarcity. He talked about like how uh, a scarcity mindset, which you're calling Definitely. a zero sum way of thinking is, um, is an obstacle to progress. And I, I think, I think he's right about that. Absolutely. Um, it's, that was really one of the things that, that, um, uh, I don't know that that resonated deeply with me is his uh, discussion of uh, scarcity in psychology and actually the the effects on behavior, um, and and I believe scarcity is actually um, a great way of understanding our problem in the current moment. So I, I think his framing there was like absolutely on point. Um, we basically there's there's a couple of. Uh, developmental paths for us as humans. And uh, we can go down the more positive um, kind of abundance oriented path uh, where we're seeking, you know, collaboration and consensus, or uh, we can go down the scarcity path with that is more uh, sort of, you know, cutthroat and uh, competitive. And it's not to say that uh, everything's always like black and white pure like that, but um, but we definitely have these different orientations and, th- and they're built into like our very physiology, our, 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 our psychology expresses these things. So um, one of the things is like if you're in the scarcity mindset, you have a harder time uh, working with others. You have a harder time thinking long term. Um, and unfortunately, I, I see a lot of uh, the left is actually suffering from this. And a lot of our philosophy is actually yes, and, and so so is the alt right, which has completely taken over the Republican Party. So there, there the, the 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 to the extent there's anybody actually standing up for true right wing values anymore, it's mainly the Democratic establishment, and and even there they're uh, accustomed to compromising. Um, with the left uh, a lot. <laughs> so that I mean, my side is pretty much endangered at this point, I think. I think the left is is winning big time. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I don't see I don't see that there's a whole lot of left in the US. Um, and I and this may be like, you know, a sort of semantic issue. And I know we've talked before about how like, you know, left wing and right wing can be difficult. Uh, terms just based off of you know, the subjective understanding. Um, so in my mind, and I, I know this is not the American Overton window, but in my mind, uh, leftism kind of starts uh, basically when you have some sort of intention towards socialism. Uh, it wouldn't have to be some sort of like, yeah, I would agree intention. with that actually. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I reserve the term left for socialism and communism. I don't use it to refer to, you know, capitalist Democrats. I think that's a, a mistake. Yeah, exactly. And kind of like, uh, you know, I know you and Corey have had conversations about Bernie's branding and stuff like that. And I I didn't see him as a socialist so much, but I did see a lot of his signaling to socialists. And I know uh, there's been conversation about, you know, a sort of like um, a sort of toxicity that was associated with some of that signaling. And I I don't think that's non-existent. I'm probably not as sensitive to it as you are, but 
Um, but the, well, that, actually, I mean, what, maybe maybe I should clarify that a little bit more. And I, I'm by the way, I'm so happy to have a person I can have this conversation with who is more patient with my red scare. My, my wife, who is more left wing than I am, said that I'm like a one man red scare. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was driving Corey crazy. So I really appreciate that you're much more willing to humor me on it. I, I think maybe sometimes you get a little wound up, but I don't, you know, I don't, it's not that there's like nothing to what you're saying. Like it's, I don't, I don't know. I, it's, it's worth hearing out, you know, and trying to like, I, I would implore anyone on the left. If you're, if you're listening and you're listening to anything and you hear someone talk about like, oh, these like, you know, toxic regressive leftists or something like that. Like I've, I've had knee jerk reactions to that kind of language and it helps if, uh, you just kind of take a breath and ask yourself if there's any truth at all to it. And and maybe there's a little bit and maybe there's something to work on there. So, you know, you don't have to take criticism at face value, but oftentimes there's something within the criticism that is actually true. Most people are actually uh, telling what they believe to be true. And just assuming everyone's like a bad actor is is a that's that's not a recipe for success. So it's it's worth listening. You know, you know, I agree with that. Um, and how do I put this? Um, I started toward the end of my conversations with Corey on, on the topic of philosophy. Um, I started to feel a little like he was gaslighting me. <laughs> and I actually said that in my last episode with uh, with Jenner. Um, and, and the truth of the matter is I know he wasn't because he's my friend and I know him to be an honorable, good, honest person. But as I was reflecting upon it, I realized that if I was speaking to a stranger, I would assume that that person that I was dealing with a dishonest person, right? Because it's very frustrating, for example, to be told on the one hand, there is no real problem with socialism. And then on the other hand, all of the reasons that, more progressive democracies are better than the U S is because of compromising with socialists and we should give socialists more of a platform. And that's how you get progress done. And what I wanted to say to that is I don't agree with that. You know, like I, I, I want to upgrade liberalism. I want liberalism 2.0. I think that we've already compromised with socialism too much. I think that the, um, the nanny state that we have right now, which traps people in poverty due to the welfare trap, and which punishes people for succeeding and overtaxes the middle class and makes it harder for people to save and invest their money and to actually become part of the capitalist class, that um, is bad. And I, and I recognize that Corey believes that that's better than nothing. And I actually think that's a perfectly coherent point that I don't even necessarily disagree with. Right. It's just that personally, me... My default position, when the only option that I have for compromising with the left is to do things that I think are actually bad for society, um, I'm going to say no. You know, it's not because I it's not because I want people to starve. It's because I don't believe that. That you can justify robbing from a successful person in order to feed a starving person. And so I'm sure I think what you would say to me is that's because of I have a scarcity mindset. 
And um, I think that there is some truth to that, but it's a little bit more than that. Actually, it's a lot more than that because it's not just about, it's not just about, I want to keep more of my own money. It's that I genuinely believe that there would be a stronger, more thriving upper middle class and even upper class in this society. We would be moving more toward a, 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 an abundant society if we allowed people to build wealth. And I think the nanny state is an obstacle. It's not, it's not, it doesn't make it impossible, but it makes it harder. And that's part of the reason I support UBI, because I see that not as compromising with socialism. I see that as a more capitalist way of creating a safety net. I, uh, I love how UBI is this sort of, I'm going to say this wrong, but like this, this like Rorschach uh, test or however you say that with the, like the ink blot test. Rorschach? Um, Rorschach. Uh, that's probably it. Um, but yeah, because uh, everyone looks at UBI and th- to those that look at it favorably, they see a reflection of their own ideology. And I think that's amazing. It's one of the reasons why I, you know, it's, it's probably coming up on like 10 years ago that um, I became convinced. Yeah, it's not quite 10, maybe nine or so. But I became convinced that UBI was actually an amazing idea. Um, and it wasn't because um, it necessarily resonated with my own thoughts. I actually had to get over uh, some of my hesitations about UBI. Um, I, I did have plenty. Um, but as I looked at the evidence that was related to it on social well-being, uh, that was very reassuring. And when I kept finding arguments for UBI from different points of view, I found libertarian arguments, conservative arguments, uh, Marxist arguments, just from, from any point of view you could imagine, there's somebody in that camp advocating for UBI. And I just saw the potential for, for all of those voices to become networked and for, for serious change to happen in a, a relatively short amount of time, like yeah. a serious social improvement. And that was something that I don't, it just, it just struck me as such a potent idea um, that if, if you get behind this idea and if you show other people that, um, voices that they care about, like I, you know, uh, this is one of the things Yang did. He would bring up Martin Luther King and he would bring up Milton Friedman, which are not voices or not names that you hear like mentioned next to each other very often. Um, but you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, right-wing economists that support this idea. There's, uh, you know, yeah, I'm actually thinking about having Charles Murray on to talk about it. And I'm just, I can't wait until, um, well, lots of people try to cancel me over that one. <laughs> I, oh, Jesus. Uh, good luck with that. <laughs> also, uh, I believe his name is Andy Stern is a, uh, yeah. um, a, a labor, a big time labor activist supports UBI. He, he did, um, um, he and Charles Murray debated in um, uh, on a, sh- a program I like called Intelligence Squared, um, and they were on the same side. They were on the we should have a UBI. Isn't that funny? Andy Stern and Charles Murray. Yeah, which are partners. which are not similar people. Like <laughs> not at all. Yeah, no, and I've oh my goodness, I could complain about Charles Murray for an hour, but I'm just not going to do that. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, the, the, you can find uh, voices in favor of this from from nearly every point of view, and I think moving forward, um, as we're as we're looking for solutions, that's going to be one of the uh, 
the the telltale signs that we should look for is um, who supports this idea and how how many points of view support this because it makes it so much easier to to take steps when you can uh, you can frame issues in ways that pull a lot of people together and that's that's not always going to be possible but it's it's a good thing when it is possible and I it's one of the reasons why UBI appealed to me deeply is just so like, this is an interesting question. Um, yeah. Would you would you say that, um, like, let's say we were going to have pass a UBI, but instead of being funded through a VAT, it was going to be funded by a hike in taxes on people who make over fifty thousand dollars a year. Would you still support it? Because I would definitely not. Um, I I would, and. I, I, my, my only problem here, like, I, I don't have any sort of like ethical issue with that. Um, the problem I perceive is just like, it's just not feasible, um, politically. And I, I actually wasn't that crazy about the VAT, uh, when I first heard about it, I, I thought it was acceptable, but it wasn't like my ideal. And actually the more I learned about it, the more I thought, um, actually this is, this is a good way to go. Um, so that was something that once again, I kind of had to wrestle with that one for a while before I felt, before I felt decent about it. Um, see, but, but now I, I would... feel like that's, a, I feel like that's a really interesting, um, place for us to talk though, because why is that right? Like why right now you and I both support, uh, basically Yang's freedom dividend. Um, and, uh, I would reform it maybe actually I wouldn't really, reform that so much, but I, I would, I would also have a, uh, a healthcare dividend and an education dividend, um, to replace, um, our, um, uh, so let's call it our social liberal, um, healthcare and education system to make it more purely liberal is the way I would prefer to characterize that. Um, but we both support, you know, the freedom dividend. And if, if it was, if, it, if in order to give everybody a thousand dollars a month, they had to have 50% taxes on income over $50,000. I would 100% oppose it. And I would, I would, I would, I would even consider voting for Donald Trump to stop that. That's how much I would oppose it. And you and, know how I feel about Trump. Right. Right. And so, but, but what, so, so thank goodness that we don't have to fund it that way, but, but there are definitely people who would prefer to do that because they seem to think that, preventing people from getting rich is 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 just as much of a, a of a goal as raising the floor and i i that's the exact opposite of my worldview i want to help everybody get rich right um yeah there, uh, so uh, there was a, a number of things there like um so we don't have to get into like uh education or healthcare but like i as as bad an idea that you think you know the the taxation on people over fifty thousand like I I think that the the vouchers for like um, education and healthcare like <laughs> I I think these are equally um, offensive to each of us. It's uh I I oof, it just seems like such a bad idea, but I understand where you're coming from, why you say it. Well, well um, I, I think you and I should talk more about maybe we could do a whole podcast just about like the my idea of the healthcare dividend, for example. Um, yeah, we'll, would, we'll dig into that sometime. Yeah, but not now, not now. Like, let's keep this this initial conversation a little broader. Right. Um, let's see what else was in that. I got distracted by the the couple of different issues there. Um, 
Well, I mean, it's just like, why are you so blasé about taking half of the income from people who are just middle class? Um, if you know, not to be not you know, not not to be mean about it or anything. <laughs> why, why are you stealing? No. Um. So I think some of this. I mean, if we really want to dig into it, I think uh, some of this has to do with uh, philosophical dispositions on like the legitimacy of of property. And what it means to earn, and uh, issues like that—that um, may be a bit much to really like unpack in the time we have. Um, but I, no, but I it mean, seems it seems very it seems very um, apropos though. If you're trying to help me understand why yeah, you're a communist, I, I mean, like, so I guess you know the long term future. Um, I actually suspect we would disagree less. But the process of getting there is where I'm going to see a lot of I, – I suspect there's going to be a lot of areas of disagreement where we can try to find consensus. Right. Um, so like for example, just like straight question, if it was up for a vote tomorrow, would you want to preserve the right, the ability of individuals to have private capital or would you want to do away with it? Um. So so this is kind of similar to the, the other – question where it's like i don't really think um that would be feasible like i i think ultimately if uh, it's kind of like um in the long term i do want to see uh nation states uh, essentially go away um but I, I i feel like it would be a problem if we just woke up tomorrow and all of our social institutions were gone and there was nothing uh to play a similar role in our lives to replace them with. So I Okay, yeah, no, I mean I get that and I appreciate that that's something that makes you different from a more authoritarian leftist, right? Yeah, I, like, I, I do I appreciate that. And so, but at the same time, like why why even have that as a goal? Like why why like if you if you can achieve a future of abundance where where the the most poor person in the world has wealth that is, you know, more like the upper middle class of the United States without taking away their ability to own capital. Why even have that on your radar? Like, who cares? Um, it's it's not so, so first off, I, I agree that we should definitely prioritize uh, moving people upward rather than like pulling the top down. Um, and that's that's something I feel like uh, a lot of leftists kind of fetishize uh, this sort of like uh, hatred for figures like Jeff Bezos. Um, you know, oh, th that guy is why everything's fucked up. I, I take a, um, a more systemic approach. I, I understand, um, social systems to run on, on systemic causation. So like uh, Jeff Bezos is, uh, you know, depending on your opinion, a feature or a bug of a systemic process. And it's not, it has, in my opinion, it has nothing to do with him as a person, um, if he wasn't there, someone else would be playing that role. Um, the, my concern about social stratification, uh, it comes from uh, a relationship that that has to um, social ill. So uh, this is uh, something you can look up. I think I mentioned it last time we were on the podcast together. Um, you know, uh, James Gilligan uh, does some good uh, speaking on the subject where he talks about 
the degree of uh, inequality between the top and the bottom of a society relates to the amount of violence that society experiences. And it's one reason why you that see... Sounds, that sounds intuitive to me. Um, I don't think poverty should exist in the United States in the 21st century. But why go after capital? Um, I mean, uh, capital basically is the notion that there should be distance between the top and the bottom, like significant distance. Um, but now I, could that could that pers- possibly be due to your own like um, scarcity thinking, though? If there's plenty to go around, then what difference does it make? So, so uh, my own scarcity, like oh, like me as a person. Um, I, no, I think, I think, I mean, maybe I'm just, uh, ignorant to my own biases, but I think it's really, uh, the end result of some, some assumptions about how society should be organized. And, uh, the end result is that you do end up with these highly stratified societies and that guarantees that, that we will have, uh, social ill and, and, levels of violence that, that neither one of us find acceptable. Um, and it's not that I think capital in and of itself is some like uh, evil, nefarious thing. Um, I think really we're just seeing different stages of social development and each stage will have its pluses and minuses. And of course, you're going to hear from the people that are experiencing more of the minuses, right? But um I really, I would go back to the framing of, of scarcity and, uh, and propertarianism. Uh, so the, the notion that uh, society should be founded on property. And I'll, I'll try to dig into this briefly and, and maybe we can get into it more. Um, so uh, basically the, the birth of civilization is associated with, uh, with property. Uh, with uh, sedentary living, uh, where people stopped being nomadic and they started living in uh, designated areas and defending those areas. And uh, that creates uh, a type of scarcity mentality. And so underlying the whole of civilization, I think, has been a scarcity strategy. And so my, my criticism of uh, capitalism, which is kind of the latest manifestation of this this whole large strategy that that humankind's been engaging in for thousands of years. Um, my my criticism goes all the way back to kind of the birth of civilization, and I think if civilization is going to continue, we actually have to uh, critically examine this strategy of propertarianism and uh, see if there are any alternatives that could serve us better. So my, my goal here is not to um, deprive people of any sort of uh, rights or liberties, but rather to uh, find strategies that uh, serve them better. And so I think this is one thing, you know, when we have this sort of scarcity mindset on the left and we want to just pull people down and we're, we're more worried about that than, than lifting, uh, you know, people who are less privileged up. Um, we, we get our priorities kind of out of whack. I think we, well, we certainly agree. We certainly agree with that. And I, 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 I don't see any reason why you and I couldn't, um, 
what's the word here? I don't see any reason why you and I couldn't find consensus and thread the needle and uh, work toward common goals. Um, but I still, okay, I, I'm mainly just trying to understand your perspective and how you think about capital and propertarianism, et cetera. Okay. So in your ideal anarcho-communist future, would it be, would, would it, would, would, could a family have like an estate, right? By which I mean like ground property land that they own that they, um, you know, obviously they still have to follow the rules. They can't, you know, the, like there, there are all kinds of limitations on what people are allowed to do with their private property, right? They can't just start a fire and the, and, and let it spread to other property, et cetera. Right. So right. There's all, all kinds of things they can't do, but within the, 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 the bounds of, of human decency and the law, it's their property. And, you know, if they want to build a barn and keep some horses, or if they want to, you know, put uh, uh, an original painting by an artist they like up on the wall. Um, that's something they're allowed to do, and it belongs to them, and they can leave it to their kids, right? And if other people want to come and ride their horses, or other people want to come and sleep in their bed, or if another person wants to come in and take that painting away from them and hang it on their wall, the law won't let them do that because the law respects that it's their property. It, does does that exist in your future? So, uh. Let me say that, that there's there's nothing wrong with anything you said there. Um, in fact, uh, the the general principle on the left is you're going to find that people don't have any sort of offense to w- what you described there. They would call uh, personal property, and so uh, no, nothing there was like struck my ears as problematic. Um, I have a little bit different framing than a lot of people on the left, and uh, what I would say is that. If you want people to, if if you want everyone to actually be able to experience that, um, property is not the best strategy to achieve that. And what I mean by that is that um, I think if we take a uh, a more abundance based uh, model, what I what I would contrast with uh, property or ownership would be access. So what I would say is uh, people should be entitled to uh, that, that sort of scenario you were describing there. And we should make that universally accessible, that scenario. So like um, I'm saying uh, everyone should have that. Um, every, if, if you want to, you know, if you have a particular like uh, interest in horses, uh, there should be no reason that you, you, you can't enjoy right uh, but how do you decide if two people want the same piece of land how do you decide who gets it like you know because they're they even even in a a post-scarcity future that is built by you know automation and 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 so forth um they're going to be there's only going to be so much land with old growth redwoods for example right right, like so if you if you want to have land with old growth redwoods on it a lot of it belongs to the government. There's only there's very little land that you can own that has that. How do you decide who gets it? So, because it's, because there are always going to be some things that are in limited supply. That's just the nature of reality. Right. No, I I agree. Some things truly are uh, finite, and we we would we either can't make more of them, or we would have a really difficult time making more of them. Um, the what I anticipate, and I. Let me suggest that I think this problem is a bit of a um, a projection from 
a, a sort of propertarian point of view. And what I actually anticipate in the future is that people will be um, less tied to a particular uh, spot of land on the earth. And we'll right, actually- but what if they are? Like, what if that? What if it's just important to them? Right, you know what I'm saying? Like, if it's just like an individual person, sure, it's important to them that they live on a piece of land because they like that land for whatever reason, right? Well, um, because it was in their family and it has meaning to them, or just because they think that it's just the prettiest, most perfect piece of land on the earth, and they own it and they want to keep it. They don't want the Gestapo to come in and break it up into 10 pieces and give it away to other people, right? What prevents that in your future? Well, uh, so um, this is going to be difficult, but I I just want you to hang with me for a second, right? So so what I anticipate, um, which, which is based off of a different way of looking at the world, I anticipate that most people are going to be really interested in the idea that they can live anywhere on the planet. And they can visit anywhere on the planet. They are not um, tied to the ownership and maintenance of a particular spot of the Earth. Rather, they can uh, pick up and move. Uh, you could arrive at some other spot, and right. So it's a nomadic want. future. But what about people who don't want that lifestyle? So, I I think fundamentally, at some point, there's a paradigm shift. And people just think differently, and it's and it's hard. But how to, do you guarantee that the entire human race all has this 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 change of heart? I mean, there's there's no guarantee about anything, right? Like, I mean, well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually let me say that stronger. I think that the odds that that would happen are zero, because it, for the same reason that the odds that all of a sudden all human beings would want capitalism are zero, because humans are different. We're individuals. We're not insects that all think the same and act the same. So what I'm talking about is a paradigm shift similar to uh, the, the one that birthed civilization. Um, so like you don't see a whole lot of people trying to go back to hunter-gatherer lifestyles. Like, I mean, some people, you know, live in kind of like hippie communes and stuff like that. But even that is not really, they're not like following herds Um you know, some, some hunter gatherers exist, but increasingly like the, they've mostly been contacted and, uh, affected by, you know, our, our modern culture. Um, and I think what we're talking about is going to be hard to understand, but it's, it's a truly a paradigm shift, um, of such a scale that, that people on the other side of that will look at the world differently. And that's not something I can guarantee. Um, that's something that takes a lot of time and, and, and effort to understand. And it's something that I'm, I'm, there's no like three or four sentences I can throw at you to explain that. Um, that's something that I've become convinced of over the course of years of like reading this sort of thing. Um, I mean, well, it, like to, to, to throw you a bone, it does, of course, um, seem intuitively true to me that if the the nature of the world 
changes dramatically that's going to impact the way all people think about the world, right? It's not, they're not all going to be the same. They're still going to be individuals. They're still going to have differences of opinion and different lifestyle preferences, et cetera. Right. But it does stand to reason to me that, you know, um, if, if the world itself changed in such a dramatic way that that could, that couldn't help, but impact the way everybody thinks about the world. So I get that. Right. But I mean, I, I guess I guess the, the 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 problem I'm having is it's easy to talk about like some kind of anarcho-communist utopian Star Trek future in theory, right? Right. Um, but what what practical value does thinking about the world that way have in our politics right now? Because the way I see it manifesting itself is in people saying stupid things like I don't like UBI because it's too good for capitalism and I want capitalism to fail, right? That pisses me off to no end. And I know that's not how you think, but I totally understand how somebody who has that mentality could think that way. And I I, 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 I think that they are um, worse than useless in terms of coming up with real policy. Well, let me tell you, those people generally aren't actually like oriented around the vision I'm talking about. Like, um, I was actually shocked to find, um, that what I had anticipated, I, I thought people on the left were much more into abundance economics than they actually are. And I'm, I'm learning that that's, uh, that's a message that still needs to be spread that I, I, and that's something that I kind of learned, uh, through the Yang campaign, because I assumed, uh, other people would see the, the same message of abundance that I saw and know what that implies. Um, and, and a lot of people just didn't see that message. So there's. Yeah. Yeah. No, indeed. In fact, that's why I, in my experience, and this is um, mostly just uh, anecdotes, but there are, there are some statistical um, there is some statistical data to back it up, but I definitely saw more opposition to the freedom dividend coming from the old school left than from the traditional right in within in the context of people who actually understood the idea and whether they liked it or not. Right. Um, and a lot of those people are also, I mean, I find this to be ironic because I really thought um, leftism is very much like a sort of a cosmopolitan or like internationalist type uh, movement. Um, and I saw a lot of people weren't really interested in thinking about like, uh, you know, like what are the implications of like, I, I think liberals are very cosmopolitan and internationalist in their, in their thought. And I count myself as one, like, I think I'm a um, cosmopolitan person. I, 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 sometimes <laughs> they are. I think, I think you are, especially for a conservative, you're very cosmopolitan and, and I mean, you know, even, uh, liberals can, can be pretty nationalistic and it's it's one of those things where it's like some are and some aren't and yeah but yeah no i i i actually i i think i think that i'm leaning more and more toward um in terms of trying to explain my perspective to people in a way that actually is helpful for them that actually helps them understand me (laughs) um i'm more and more i'm i instead of saying you know like I'm a conservative or I'm right wing because people associate those words with like, you know, regressive theocratic asshole fascist idiots. Right. Right. So instead of saying that, 
I'll say, you know, I am I am in favor of preserving liberal democracy and free trade capitalism, and I'm opposed to nationalism, I'm opposed to socialism, and I'm opposed to populism. And the, the reason I say that instead of I'm opposed to communism and I'm opposed to fascism isn't because I'm not also opposed to those things. It's because the number of people who self-identify as a communist or as a, a fascist or a Nazi are very few and far between. But lots right. of people, lots of regular people like to think of themselves as populist or nationalist or socialist. And so I, I, I think it's important to use those words and say I'm against those things. Because those are things that people are actually admitting to supporting. Right. Yeah. The, there's not that many people talking about communism. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Although, although I would argue that, like, and I know this actually gets to the heart of the anarcho-communist thing. So, uh, you know, this conversation is going to go on for a long time. We're not going to resolve all of our differences in an hour and a half, right? Oh, damn. Um, <laughs> But like, to me, I understand how um, theoretically anarcho-communism makes more sense as a concept than anarcho-capitalism, which you and I agreed is an oxymoron, right? Yeah. But in practice, if anybody, anybody who is trying to achieve communist outcomes through the government, by definition, right, is, uh, is, 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 has to to be not an anarcho-communist, but rather some kind of Stalinist, right? Because that's doing it by forcing people to do it by definition is the authoritarian way of going about it, isn't it? it you know, I wouldn't make a, a total like blanket statement like that because I do see um, supporting uh, Andrew Yang's policies as in part like furthering my own vision. Right, but that's because you believe that it'll help to bring it about in a more small l libertarian air quotes way, right? Right, right. And, and um, I, that that makes sense to me. But I'm just saying, like, if you're okay, yeah, no, that's actually I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna give you that one because I I think that's actually a really valid difference, right? So maybe we don't disagree as much as we think. I I would say um, there's there's definitely like, like I have no problem with people living choosing to live. In a commune, for example, right? right? And capitalism allows people to do that. But what I oppose is doing like what they did in North Korea, where they say, now everything belongs to the state and we are going to divvy it up in the interest of the collective. And no, you are not allowed to move. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, I think that's terrifying and always goes wrong. Yeah. If you look at, um, say, like what happened, uh, you know, maybe in Russia, um, if you look at the 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 more anti-authoritarian players that were involved um, in you know the the early Soviets and stuff, they got crushed, right? <laughs> so um, there's a lot of uh, bad blood and mistrust between uh, authoritarian and anti-authoritarian leftists, and uh, at least some of us are very yeah. And very, I would argue there's also there's also a lot of bad blood between nationalist and globalist leftists, right? Um, you know, Marx was more of like a workers of the world unite global kind of Marxist, right? Right. Well, <laughs> definitely. I mean, you know, the original Marxist, um, <laughs> right? Uh, but then you know, um, 
what what we can get into a debate about whether or not it qualifies as right wing or left wing, but I think we can both agree it's definitely not liberal. Um, what went under the moniker of national socialism um, differed from Marxism in a number of ways, um, and one of them being that obsession with nationalism. Uh, it was it was directly opposed to Marxism. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But one, yes, I, I I agree with that. I agree that it was opposed to Marxism. Um, but I guess actually that might that might be a helpful way for us to try to understand each other too, because I think part of the reason I haven't totally given up on the left right distinction is because sometimes I'm trying to convey uh, an idea that doesn't exactly translate to a specific ideology like socialism. Um, I think of leftism as collectivist as opposed to liberalism, which I, th- which I consider right-wing, which I consider individualist. And I think of any ideology that is willing to undermine individual liberty in order um, for the for the well-being of the collective um that's i consider that left wing and um and so in that sense i think i think fascism was left wing so but i it, fully acknowledge that it's entirely different from marxism i mean it has some similarities but mo- yeah. but it's very different yeah and i'm uh, just personally i mean i'm not uh, there's a lot of ways in which i disagree with um uh, marxist analysis um that's interesting so yeah, yeah, not all lefties are Marxists, um, and I, I would uh, caution against. I think it's an oversimplification. This sort of uh, collectivism versus individualism, um, because I, I very much, uh, I I see collectivism and individualism as uh, potentially harmonious. Like I, I really don't think uh, there's a contradiction there. Um, Unless, uh, like, once again, it kind of comes back to the, the, the framing of scarcity, where, like, in, in uh, situations of scarcity, you have to kind of make choices between those things. Um, but I, I think from a mindset of abundance, you can actually synthesize them. And I, the, yeah, no, I, I actually think that's true. Um, and I, I think, I think, I, I think that practically um a future where automation um has made most of the what we currently consider jobs obsolete um i think we will um move toward a, a more of a post scarcity future again if we don't blow ourselves up or destroy democracy or something like that in the process right cuz if we don't if we don't allow a Stalinist or Nazi um, to take over human civilization and, and prevent us from achieving this goal or, 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 or hoard all of the benefits of it for themselves, right? Which is very likely. If we don't, I mean, if that doesn't happen, then yes, in the future, we will have a post-scarcity society with a very, very high universal basic income. Everybody's not just their basic needs, but most people's, you know, reasonable middle-class wants will be met um, and it won't be tied to labor. I think that's all true. I just don't see why the concept of capital has to, has to go away for that to happen. I, I think it's actually more likely to happen if we keep it. And, and, um, and people who oppose property rights, that to me is even more terrifying than opposing capitalism. So, so let me, um, let me, let me try to make this a little more accessible. Um, so, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I, what I see, uh, what I see coming is more of a paradigm shift 
um, rather than uh, some sort of set of policy proposals. So I think the reason why um, we're going to find strategies that, uh, that I believe in time, uh, even yourself, even, even though you're very uh, committed to like the sort of uh, propertarian ideal, I think in time, uh, this would be revealed to your type of disposition as well, that um, there, there will be superior strategies for resource allocation that actually fulfill your own wants and desires better than propertarianism currently does. And so that's, that's the development that, that changes the whole like socioeconomic model. Is yeah. That like, and I, you know, I'll even grant you that if, um, you know, if a future comes where there was a paradigm shift and 100% of human beings all collectively want to give up their property rights in order to achieve something else, um, then, you know, that would be a completely um, non-authoritarian achievement. But I just don't see that happening. And, and, and I wonder how helpful it is in real life right now where we have to come up with policies like, how much money should we take away from the middle class in order to fund this or that program? I don't think, you know, that kind of pie in the sky um, theorizing is helpful. I, I I think it's interesting and I like talking about it, but it's, I don't see how it is remotely helpful in policymaking. Well, it, um, so it informs what I'm looking for in policy, right? So like it was, it was one of the reasons why I was attracted to Andrew Yang. So um, in it, in a way, um, what your long-term vision is, um, from like if you understand that well, that can inform the path towards it. And so, um, maybe something, uh, maybe something that would make this more accessible. I remember the first time I was on the podcast, um, I, w- I was trying to explain this idea of uh, access versus uh, ownership with uh, cars. And there's actually a lot of uh, literature from like automobile companies currently about uh, this notion of like access versus ownership and what most people want. Um, and currently, like uh, interest in uh, getting your driver's license is actually way lower than it has been historically, and it's because the, the people's priorities are just naturally shifting. Um, in a world where we could have, you know automated cars coming and picking us up and dropping us off in a sort of like uh, maybe Netflix type subscription model. Um, Actually owning a car and uh, paying the insurance for yourself and uh, maintaining it yourself and suffering the problems whenever it breaks down, that makes less and less sense for more and more people. Yeah, no, that's actually a perfectly valid point, and I, I agree with you. And I, I think especially for people who live in cities, um, you know, car ownership is increasingly impractical. I remember uh, when my wife and I were living in downtown L.A., we did keep a car, and we paid a lot of money to park it in our own building. <laughs> right. And we only took it out, like, maybe once a month, right? So right. that was – you know, that was uh, a situation where I can understand how somebody who – valued their ability to pick to take off and and go where they want to go on with on their own time and not be dependent on somebody else um 
you know, uh, somebody who valued that less w- could very easily decide, like, I'm not going to spend all the money to have a car. You know, parking is just part of it. You know, you also, of course, have the cost, the cost of the car itself and the maintenance and the gas and all of that stuff. Um, so, um, right. so, I, so, I, I, so I guess what I'm saying is, like, I can understand that point. But, you know, th- that's kind of like saying it's already true, for example, that owning a physical book is kind of a waste of resources and money, right? Because you can you can listen to it on an audiobook that you got through the library. Um, you can read it on your tablet. You could have, you know, a library that would fill a giant castle on one tiny little device that weighs n- close to nothing that you can take on the airplane with you, right? right. So physical books are materially expensive. They take up real estate. Um, they're very impractical and they're much more expensive monetarily, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, there are some people who still like to collect books, just like there are people who still collect LPs. And, oh, yeah. no, I, I, and I think in a future that you're describing, some people will still want to, you know, have their 1950s Porsche and that they can take to car shows and stuff. Yeah, no. So I, property I still exists myself. is what I'm saying. I, so like I myself still like physical books. Like the, everything you said there's true. And um, I'm myself, I, I had a record collection up until recently whenever I moved a couple times and it finally be- records are a pain in the ass to move. So they're heavy. Yeah, exactly. So a, fu- so a future where most people choose not to have, you know, a giant library of books or not to have a car, right. That they own. Right. Um, it seems incredibly, not just plausible, but incredibly likely. And and I don't think, right? but that's is, but that's entirely different from saying there won't be property because some people will still want them, right? So um, so and I and I want to stress that like this, I don't think this is like some sort of like a uh, program that uh, that we have to like uh, push onto people. I think this is literally just a, a natural socioeconomic development, just like uh, the advent of agriculture. Or you know that that is associated with the rise of civilization. So I think uh, technology and uh, the the advent of like this this material abundance that we're seeing, especially in the digital world, but more and more in the physical world, I think it's going to change our whole relationship to uh, to to you know property and uh, just the the whole concept of ownership means something different. So like I remember. Uh, whenever Napster broke onto the scene and it was like, you know, big scandal. And it just, it, it blew my little high school mind that I now had access to all the music like ever. And uh, the market has kind of adjusted to that now. And we have different models. Uh, the, the model that seems to be emerging right now with a lot of goods is this sort of uh, freemium uh, premium type model where you have like a free product that people can enjoy. And then if you want to pay a couple extra bucks, you can like get rid of the ads or something like that. Um, right. Yeah. No, so and, like I, I, I subscribe to iTunes. Um, so I get, you know, I can listen not to all music. There's definitely some obscure stuff that they don't have in the iTunes library, but right. pretty much all popular music and even most classical music. Um, is is available quote for free and i have it all you know um in on um, you know <laughs> obviously it's not physically in my phone but i have access to all of it through my little iphone 
Um, but I also have a record collection and um, I'm a collection of CDs and my wife and I, you know, went to great pains to move them. We had to actually hire people to load all of our crap up and, you it's, know, um, it's, tough. <laughs> it's, it's heavy. And, and I, so like, it's entirely possible. I also have a collection of like, uh, vintage video games in the original boxes. Mm-hmm. Right. But like, you can also on your Xbox, you can go download in some cases for free, in some cases for like seven bucks, you can get the original Mario Brothers. You don't have to have a physical NES to play it, but I still, I still do, right? Because I like to collect things. We like we we collect art, right? Right. Uh, a print of something is a lot cheaper than an original, but I right. like collecting the original. And even in, even in a future where you could three D print an exact copy of an original Picasso, I think the original Picasso is still going to be desirable because there will still only be the one. So by definition, it will be like, I, I think you will still have, uh, uh, you will still have social capital. You will still have ways that people um, signal to each other that they're part of a, an elite class. It's kind of funny. Like if you think about uh, not too long ago, you know, ostentatious displays of wealth were 100% acceptable way of showing that you're upper class. Whereas nowadays, uh, inconspicuous consumption is actually more a sign of upper class, whereas ostentatious displays of wealth is actually considered day class A and a sign of new money, right? Right. So in a a post-scarcity future, there's still going to be a social hierarchy. It's just going to manifest itself differently. So um, so I think... I think it's very difficult to think. So one of my, uh, one of my own privileges on this subject is um, my background in anthropology. And I think it helps me understand that um, values um, are associated with certain contexts and they're not. um, We, we tend to think of the values that our society holds as like inherent to human nature. And, whenever you're exposed to so many different sets of values and often sets of values that contradict each other, um, that hold like entirely opposing visions of human nature. Um, you see how, how pliable these things really are, even though like in our moment, they, they feel absolute. Yeah, no, I, 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 that idea seems accurate to me. Like, I think you're right about that. Um, but you know, that, that's part of the reason why I keep coming back to the individualism thing though, because as long as one sentient creature values something, it's then that value still has value. Um, and you know, I mean, by definition, elite values are held by a minority of the population, but they still matter to the people who hold them. Right. And I, and I'm, um, the the reason I bring that up is because um, I share uh, some of the biases that you described. Like um, uh, up until it became like uh, infeasible for myself, I had my own record collection that I really enjoyed. I listened to them all the time. They were like lower quality than the stuff I could get um, online, but I just liked them, you know. Um, and that was just a bias I had. Uh, it's probably not going to be a very widespread bias, um, say a hundred years from now. Um, people are probably not going to care that much about records. And if they do care about records, we're, we're likely going to have the technology where they could literally manufacture their own records in their own home on demand. 
Right. No, I agree with that. But I think the originals will still have value because of the fact that they can't be manufactured like that. Right. You see what I'm saying? And and that's that's possible. That's possible. Um, I mean, they they might be practically priceless, like the sort of thing that goes in a museum because the average person can't afford it. Right. And I and I think that's probably um, kind of the more the more the direction things will trend is more like you might put something on public display or something just to just so that other people can enjoy it and appreciate it. Um, right. But should we force everybody to do that or should we let it happen naturally? So I, 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 what I like about you and the reason why you are one of the recurring um, guest stars of the podcast and why I'm going to keep talking to you is I, <laughs> I is, is that, you know, um, you're not on the, the force side of things, right? Because like I remember talking to one of the communists, and this is this is this is a, a highly educated. And I don't very want your records. <laughs> so a highly educated and very thoughtful person, but who is much more authoritarian in his style of communism than you are, right? Right. He's definitely one of the people who says like, "Oh, the DPRK is actually secretly a paradise," right? Yeah, um, that's disturbing. It's disturbing. It's disturbing that highly educated, intelligent people can believe something that's so obviously not true. Um, right. But setting that aside, you know, I asked him, I said, like, OK, you say you're a democratic socialist. Um, and this was a person who understood the actual meaning of democratic socialist. He wasn't just using it as a synonym for social democracy like Bernie Sanders does in his like he he, he, he acts like it's his life's calling to right. miseducate people. It frankly pisses me off. Um but, you know, this guy knew what he was talking about, and he's a democratic socialist because he wants to bring about actual socialism through democratic means. Um, and his way of doing it is more authoritarian than yours in the sense that he believes that the state should force everybody to be socialist. But he wants to bring that about by, you know, a majoritarian vote in the democratic system. And I said, OK, so like in your in your future, you've accomplished that. Now, what if somebody wants to move? What if they want to leave the United States and go live in, you know, Scandinavia, which even though Bernie Bolsheviks like to point to it as supposedly an example of a socialist paradise, it's actually purely a capitalist society. I mean, it has a mixed economy, just like right. we do, but it's a capitalist society with a social no, I'd, safety. I'd definitely it identify it as capitalist as well. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, and, and as would all of the people over there. Like there were there were people in Norway that were really annoyed that Bernie Sanders kept calling them socialists. Anyway, um, and what if they want to go live in, you know, the capitalist paradise that is Sweden? And he said they can't in his in his future because he recognizes that if you allow the people who are the most productive and who therefore are going to be the most drawn to a capitalist alternative to leave, then you will lose your ability to generate all the wealth you need in order to have your socialist society. So I appreciate that you're not like that. I want to be clear. I know that that's not your position, but you yeah, can understand no, that's, that's, why in, when it seems to be a far more common position than yours, that's why people hate socialists so much. Yeah, no. And that's, and that's very concerning. And I, one of the reasons why there's so much, uh, why like leftist infighting is like a trope is because of stuff like this. It's because uh, there are people with really bad ideas. I'm sure you see people on the right with really bad ideas. Like, <laughs> It's, uh, some people just, yeah, if we, we shouldn't pay them any attention or if we do it, it should be with great concern. Um, 
No, the the reason why um, I've brought up a couple times that I, I perceive this to be a natural process and not something that like requires some sort of program. Uh, basically, I think uh, the the way I envision the future, I think it's going to unfold naturally if um, we do survive our our ecological struggles. Yeah, like, no, I, like I, 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 we have to start wrapping it up because it's just, it's just getting insanely long. Sure. Um, but yes, no, I mean, I, I think we both both agree on that point. Um, and I think we might even also agree that, you know, assuming you're right, that a, a future of post largely post scarcity, where the only things that are limited are the sorts of things that people could only care about you know, for emotional reasons rather than material reasons, right? Like original records are in museums and that sort of thing, right? Right. Um, in a future like that, people will naturally care less about certain kinds of, of property and so forth. And so you won't have to outlaw private property. It'll just be, it'll be like a, a thing that maybe only one half of 1% of the population that's super eccentric cares about. Right. The, it would, the, the it one, would be the one thing, like the, well, in terms of finding consensus, and maybe you, this already is your view, but the one thing I would want you to grant me is that you should still allow that minority of people to have their eccentric preferences. Well, and, and that's, that's kind of why I, I try to identify this as like a natural process is because I think, first off, I think my impact on the world is, is, uh, pretty negligible. Um, so I, I don't really see, um, me really being like a large variable in, in whatever the outcomes are. Um, but, uh, the, so like what I'm, what I'm saying here is that like, I, I'm, I'm playing more of like an interpretive role here rather than like, um, trying to suggest that this is the future we should go towards. Um, this is the future I see like unfolding. Should we avoid, uh, catastrophe, uh, which we both agree on. Um, so I, I don't yeah, think, yeah, we do agree about that. And we also agree that we will get there faster by replacing the current tax and spend nanny state with a universal basic income funded by a VAT. Right. Like, uh, basically, um, any sort of abundance oriented strategy that improves social well-being, I am in favor of. And I, I do believe Yang's platform was basically the best one we've ever had. In I this mean, but defined, defined that way, I would agree with it. Where, where I think we would disagree is maybe we wouldn't both agree that policy A would actually result in improving, you know, the welfare of humanity. Yeah. And, and really, when it comes to that sort of thing, I'm, I'm absolutely open to like what the empirical evidence suggests. Right. And like, that's, that's the whole reason UBI won me over in the first place is just, um, I wasn't sure about it. And then I looked at the relevant studies and I, honestly, I couldn't see what the downside was. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I it's interesting because it, when you, when you get into ethics and talking about well-being and so forth, you know, you're trying to have an objective data-driven conversation about subjective human experience, right? Because, but like the, the, the subjective human experience is what we mean by welfare, of human beings, right? We want right. people to feel subjectively, which just means it doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means that like, it's a personal feeling as opposed to something else. Right. Better. Yeah. Like, 
like it it absolutely and so like i mean i i would i would argue that in order in order and i think you would agree with this and in, in order to achieve that goal we have to have enormous respect and pay a lot of concern to the subjective experiences of individuals uh, absolutely um so th- there's uh, obviously like a correlation between like like the the objective situation and how people subjectively feel about it, um, but but yeah, agreed. That's, yeah, that's I, I don't I don't a, think it's a paradox. I I, I just, it's a little counterintuitive. I think you're right. Yeah, but but that's that should be uh, one of our our kind of uh, our biggest markers as to like what well being means is exactly like what people are experiencing. And I, th- I think this is one of the pro- it's it's one of the reasons yeah, why no, like I, I don't want to I like hear- that I like that like if if being on fire felt amazing to <laughs> people right and didn't have any material consequences any negative material consequences we would all be constantly wanting to be on fire like it's all about <laughs> the subjective experience but of course the 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 there are objective physical things in the world like the laws of physics that make it such that being on fire actually feels terrible. Yeah, yeah, your your nervous system functioning properly and the way fire eats at your flesh. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because we have, we evolved to not like the sensations of things that are bad for us for the most part. Well, that that that's a whole other ball game you can get into when you talk about things like modern candy that is made to taste like super fruit and that is very <laughs> bad for us, unlike actual fruit. All right, this seems like a really good place to wrap to wrap this up. Actually, and I, I like that idea of working toward a goal, a shared goal of um of you know improving um the level of human of well being for humans in the world, or I would even say for conscious creatures. Um, uh, to steal a, a line from um, Sam Harris's uh, moral landscape. Yeah, um, no. All I, right, so I'll give I, you the final I, word, but yeah, that seems like a good a good jumping off point for our conversations going forward. Absolutely. And uh, I, I just totally agree with that. Um, I know, you know, Sam Harris is kind of a controversial figure, but I think his uh, his notion of a moral landscape. I find it ridiculous actually, that he is, to be honest. Like, it just really <laughs> bothers me. We'll have to get into that sometime. Um, but uh, I do think like his his um, his notion of a moral landscape has like a lot of utility to it. And uh, it, it is a good uh, framework for discussions like this. Well, and, I like, I like, I mean, it's, I, I have never seen, um, and I, I know that his expertise is in neuroscience, not philosophy, uh, but he, his, his neuroscientific investigations are all driven by philosophical questions. Um, right. Right. He's not trying to, to cure Alzheimer's. He's trying to like answer questions like, do we have free will? <laughs> so I think of him as a philosopher. Um, right. I think and, he's good on that one too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think, I think that, um, how do I put this? I, I, I've never seen another philosopher express how you could have moral realism um, in a more coherent way than the way he did there. I think that he was basically the moral landscape is just a, somebody who is a moral realist defending moral realism against a, um, absolute skepticism. And I think it's a I think it's well done. Right. Um, I, so it sounds like that's something we have in common. We we are both moral realists. We believe that there that our actions in the world really have moral value. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I, what I would just say about that I appreciate about uh, this notion of like centering uh, well being um, and kind of centering a, a, a an empirical understanding of it is that we're we're always going to have um, at least some information 
that is separate from our individual opinions that we can reference. And I think that's one of the reasons why that framework has such utility is that um, we can we can always come back to like the empirical understanding of the facts regarding like how we as people and our, our physiology and our psychology and all these different aspects of who we are, like how these things actually function in the real world and like how to improve them. So I, I think that is like kind of a good basis for um, if we want to like come back to, to reference that in the future, I think that's a, a good kind of, uh, yeah. Uh, oh, the, uh, the bit where you were kind of uh, you were kind of pressing me on like, uh, you know, in the future is that, you know, are, are people going to have their property rights violated or something like that? And, um, the, like, first off, like, I just, I, I have a hard time understanding the question just because like, I have no power. Right. And I'm generally like opposed to people having a sort of power that would be required for something like that to happen. So it's, it's kind of just like outside of, of my like political paradigm. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I get that, but I'm just saying like, it, you know, I guess, I guess when I ask you questions like that, I would come at it from like in a future where people do have that power to do that. Would you be opposed to it? And it sounds like your answer is yes, which is if the answer I will, I was hoping for. Yeah. Well, uh, like fundamentally, um, I, I want to see things decentralized and I know that that sounds, uh, contradictory, um, to you because Not you really. associate. No, no, I, I, I actually don't. I, I, I think I, I think I'm starting to understand your worldview. But, but yeah, so like I had a, I, I, I kind of struggled to answer that. And that's why I kept uh, coming back to the, the notion that I, I'm not like prescribing something so much as like, this is, this is how I see things unfolding if we avoid um, obliterating ourselves. So it's, well, that's interesting. I'm going to keep forcing you to like actually talk about like <laughs> things that we can do. I mean, we do get, we get to choose, for example, who we vote for. We get to choose like who we want to represent us. And I mean, I understand that some anarchists would say like, well, I'm not going to vote at all because I don't believe in that, that system. I, but you're not one of that type of anarch anarchist because you do vote and you are going to vote for Joe Biden. Right. Like over the, over the last uh, handful of years, I've kind of evolved on that. Like um, I didn't, so between uh, the Bernie primaries in like uh, 2015 or whatever, like I voted Bernie then. Um, prior to that, the last time I had cast a vote was for John Kerry. <laughs> so it, crap. it had been a while and I yeah. had, and I kind of had to go through a process of like understanding my own political philosophy and like why I do want to participate in that side of things. I, I consider, so uh, this was something that I thought maybe would come up, but it, it never really felt like it fit. Um, but I, I consider the electoral process and uh, state policy, like governing policy. Um, I, I consider all that statecraft and I, I put it as like a subset of politics, but I, I consider politics to be a larger activity of, of no, like I, I interaction between i mean people. that's that's obviously true i mean like right. our, our conversations here have no direct impact on policy because we're not policymakers. but that doesn't mean we're not still engaging in a political act by having these conversations we 100 exactly. are and that will have a real impact in the world to the extent that we are persuading other humans who listen to it 
Exactly. So, so yeah, like, um, we're not even persuading, but just impacting, you know, like even if they disagree with everything we're saying, uh, you know, well, you, you studied anthropology, so you're familiar with the the principle that, you know, you can't, you you can't study something without changing it. And that's kind of like what's happening here. Like you can't engage in, in a conversation like this, even as a passive listener without it changing you in some way. Right. We're all participants. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one thing that we could go into with all this as um, a discussion about uh, free will because oh, I, yes. Yeah. I think that would be a fascinating conversation. Yeah. I think I'm, our, a, I'm a compatibilist. So I actually disagree with uh, Sam Harris on that. Yeah, no. And, and we'll have fun digging into it, but I think uh, some yeah, of I, I'm, I, I'm, 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 I'm more along Daniel Dennett when it comes to right. free will. Um, I think some of where we're framing like our understanding of like how the future unfolds, I think some of it is a, is a disagreement on like how we understand like human behavior. And so yeah, that's, that, that's that's probably true. <laughs> I think so. I think that yeah, I, I, eventually yeah, we absolutely. should steer into that territory. All right, that sounds good, Chet. I, I, I will definitely do that. You know, Corey and I used to talk about, or I'm sure we still will in our policy discussions. And I promise, listener, someday I will stop crushing on Corey in every single one of these conversations. He's not present. <laughs> um, but like, you know, we 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 have often said like, oh, you know, if all progressives were like you, you know, I could get along with them a lot better. If all conservatives were like you, I could get along with them a lot better. So I will definitely say that is how I feel about you. I wish that all communists were like you instead of like that asshole I just mentioned. <laughs> hey, hey, me too. I don't. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I know. And I and I and I wish all conservatives were like me. <laughs> all right, that's that. Um, okay, and. Uh, mm, do you want to say the? Uh, do you want to say it? You know, I I thought about this, and I think um, now that you're adding kind of more ingredients to the mix, um, moving forward really is our gumbo. Thank you for joining us on the Moving Forward podcast. Conversations like this can help lay the groundwork for a productive and collaborative future for us all. If you haven't yet, go to movingforwardpod.com for more content and information that can help you support the show. To be clear, you you are an anarcho communist. That's right, right? Yeah, correct. You're not a you're not a tanky. No, you're not an authoritarian <laughs> Stalinist. Uh, yeah, I, those those people make me uncomfortable. Yeah, me too, brother. <laughs> All right, cool, cool.